Welcome back to the Insurance versus History podcast. I'm Meredith Brasher, your writer and host, and I'm excited to dive into more episodes where I examine how insurance has changed history, and sometimes how it failed to change history, even when it really, really tried. I have both a bachelor's and master's degree in history, and for almost 20 years I worked in the insurance industry, underwriting liability exposures for everything from paranormal investigators to the world's top 500 companies. Do you want to know how history happened? Insurance can help. I thought it would be fun to use an episode to talk about one of the great movies that feature insurance, the 1944 movie Double Indemnity. As you might imagine, or probably know, there are not a lot of movies where insurance is a major plot point. Sometimes insurance will be mentioned, but it's rarely the main part of the movie. Go figure, right? Enter Double Indemnity, a movie about life insurance fraud and murder. I think you can make a case that this movie has more insurance than any other movie out there. And the best part? It's pretty darn accurate. Not to mention it's a great movie and it's still entertaining people more than 78 years later. That's amazing. If you haven't seen Double Indemnity, don't worry, but I bet after this episode you'll want to see it. I promise there's a little history in there too. And yes, this is my third episode in a row on life insurance. I promise to move on to other insurance products and stories after this for a while at least. My next episode promises plenty of controversies and absolutely no life insurance. As for Double Indemnity, not only is it considered one of the great American movies, but it also offers some really interesting insight into the development of an innovative insurance product and how persistence, whether making a movie or selling insurance, is key. If you haven't seen the movie, Double Indemnity is a black-and-white film made in 1944 starring Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson. If you're not into old Hollywood, you may not know who any of these people are. That's fair. Maybe some of the names ring a bell, but you can't place the faces. Fred McMurray? Maybe you remember seeing Fred McMurray in old Disney movies from the 50s and 60s like The Shaggy Dog and The Absent-Minded Professor, Or your grandparents or parents like to watch reruns of My Three Sons. That's where I knew him from, as the dad from My Three Sons. Barbara Stanwyck, she was the biggest female movie star in the world in the 1940s, though you might not know her now. I've seen a lot of old movies since the pandemic started, courtesy of the Criterion Channel streaming service, but this was actually the first thing I'd seen her in, so she was new to me. Edward G. Robinson? Well, That's a name I suspect you've heard before, even if you've never seen him in anything. Robinson was an actor, a very short one, about five foot four, who played a lot of gangsters in the 1930s, but for people in my generation, we probably knew him mostly through Mel Brooks impressions that showed up in several Bugs Bunny shorts. That's how I knew him for a long time. The movie in question, Double Indemnity, was directed by Billy Wilder. Wilder was a screenwriter, and this movie was only the third he had helmed as a director. Eventually, he would go on to be one of the top directors of the 50s and 60s. You might know him best as the director of Some Like It Hot and The Seven-Year Itch, both big Marilyn Monroe movies. The script for Double Indemnity was based on a book by James M. Kane. Kane was a writer who specialized in, quote, hard-boiled crime fiction, unquote. You may have heard of some of his other novels, like The Postman Always Rings Twice or Mildred Pierce. With so many big names involved, it's not surprising that the movie was a hit. But there were a lot of movies in the 20th century that were big hits at the time, but are all but forgotten now. 
Double indemnity endures, and that's a combination of things. A great script, great actors, snappy dialogue, and interesting plot. But even more so, the movie is considered perhaps the absolute best example of film noir. You know, those gritty, dark, cynical crime dramas that we see all the time today. Sin City, Gone Girl, No Country for Old Men, L.A. Confidential, Seven. These are all modern film noir that owe a lot to Double Indemnity. And the best part is, Double Indemnity is a movie all about insurance. If you haven't seen the movie, or if you haven't seen it in a while, I'll recap the very basic plot for you, just to jog your memory. Fred McMurray, our slightly stodgy, upright movie actor, plays Walter Neff, a very successful insurance salesman in Los Angeles in 1938. While making the rounds of the L.A. neighborhoods, dropping off policies and talking to potential clients, in a suit with a very short tie, he decides to make a quick stop at the home of a man whose personal auto insurance policies had lapsed. The service, can you imagine? When he arrives and shoves his way in the door in a manner that any salesman might be proud or ashamed of, he is greeted by Phyllis Dietrichson, played by femme fatale Barbara Stanwyck, wearing only a towel and a terrible, terrible blonde wig. While the conversation suggests she probably has on a swimsuit underneath it, there's definitely some tension there. It's too bad for Neff. Her husband, the policyholder, isn't home. Neff and Phyllis engage in some intense, very suggestive flirting. She asks him to come back the next night to meet with her husband, but when he comes back, guess what? Her husband isn't home. What a shock. Phyllis asks Neff if he could, you know, help her get an accidental death policy on her husband. Without telling the husband, of course. Neff immediately knows what's what, that she's planning to murder her husband and collect some insurance money, and he leaves. Phyllis shows up later at Neff's apartment, unannounced, and they flirt some more, and then it appears, though it is unclear, that they have sex. After that, he suddenly agrees to help her obtain that accident policy and even to help her murder her husband. Neff says he's thought a lot about how you could fool the insurance company and Even better, fool the insurance company into paying double the accident policy through something called a double indemnity clause. The only catch is that Phyllis's husband has to die in an accident involving a train for that double indemnity clause to kick in. They agree to take out the accident policy for $50,000 or $100,000 for that double indemnity claim if they're successful. That doesn't seem like a lot of money today, but with inflation, 50K is approximately 1 million and the 100K would be $2 million. After much intrigue and a lot of secret meetings at a very well-organized grocery store, Phyllis's husband, who at this point is on crutches because of a recent accident involving his ankle, unrelated to all this murdering being planned, he decides, with Phyllis's help, to go on a business trip via train. The plan is in motion. The husband and wife get into their car to head to the train station, but Neff, is hiding in the back seat. Seriously, how they could get the six-foot-two-inch McMurray into the back seat of this little car and no one saw him, I do not know. There is no way this man fit there. Anyway, Neff kills the husband, which we don't see at all, only Phyllis's face in the driver's seat as it happens. Then Neff boards the train in disguise with crutches and a bandaged foot and a hat pulled low over his face. After the train leaves the station, he jumps off the back of the train meets up with Phyllis, and the two of them dump the already dead body of her husband on the tracks. Seems simple enough, right? Those insurance people at Neff's company aren't so sure. The head of the insurance company thinks it's suicide, which would then make the policy invalid. But the claims manager, Barton Keyes, played by Edward G. Robinson, 
thinks that even more nefarious things might be afoot. His investigation leads him back to Phyllis, and maybe even Neff, though Neff has his own problems. The romance with Phyllis has lost its luster, and he barely wants anything to do with her anymore. Why should he? Neff's already started up a relationship with Lola, Phyllis's stepdaughter, which really boggled my mind, but it does kind of fit right into the category of cynical film noir thing that should probably happen. When Neff finds out that Lola's ex-boyfriend has been visiting Phyllis at home every night, he thinks for sure he's been set up as a sucker. He goes to Phyllis's house, there's a shooting, and Phyllis dies. Wounded, he was shot in the shoulder in the confrontation. Neff returns to the insurance company to confess his crimes into a dictaphone, where he's found by Keyes, the claims manager. The movie ends as the ambulance and the police arrive. As with any film noir, Neff is smoking almost constantly throughout, even while shot and bleeding out. If you haven't seen the movie, I definitely recommend it. One of the things that struck me as I was watching it is that we take for granted today so many of the things that were considered new and controversial in this movie, and you should definitely keep that in mind as you watch. The play of light and dark shadows, the way that the vertical blinds reflected in the rooms almost look like prison bars, the oppressively dark interior rooms, and the extremely bright outdoor scenes, the dialogue, even the fact that the hero is an anti-hero. These things were really new when Double Indemnity was made. They're things we see all the time in movies today. And while there were a handful of other films made before Double Indemnity that were also considered film noir, this is definitely the one that clearly defined it. Also, Edward G. Robinson is amazing. The best insurance portrayal on screen, hands down, as far as I'm concerned. More on that later. Even more amazing, this was based on a true story, sort of. James M. Cain didn't start out as a novelist. He honed his writing skills working as a journalist. In the 1920s, he was living in New York and working for a newspaper called the New York Mercury. While at the Mercury, he attended the infamous trials of Ruth Snyder and Judd Gray in 1927. These murders inspired not only this book, but a whole host of other books, movies, and even plays. Ruth Snyder was a married woman from Queens in her early 30s who fell in love with a married man, Judd Gray. Ruth was a respectable woman from all accounts. Her husband, who was at least a decade older than Ruth, was an art editor with a motorboating magazine. I had no idea that a motorboating magazine art director job even existed in 1927, but it did, and they were well off enough to have bought a house in Queens. The house is still there, by the way, if you ever want to take a look at Google Maps. Ruth and her husband Albert had one child, Lorraine, who was nine. Depending on who you believe, Ruth and her husband either had an okay relationship or a terrible one, but we do know that he definitely had a strong regard for a woman he'd been engaged to before Ruth and who had died before they could marry. He hung a picture of this dead fiancé in a prominent place in their home, and he named his boat after this woman, which couldn't have been conducive to marital harmony. At some point, Ruth started an affair with Judd Gray, who was a married corset salesman. I imagine your average corset salesman was somewhat of a ladies' man, just because. I mean, I really have no proof, but don't you think? They met at the Waldorf Astoria and put Lorraine on the elevator while they rented a room. Apparently, Lorraine rode up and down the elevator for hours with the elevator operator, and I guess she must have enjoyed it. At some point, Ruth took out a $48,000 life insurance policy on her husband, 
with the help of an insurance agent who was willing to bend the rules and do a little forgery. And soon after, she and Gray murdered Albert and pretended it was a burglary. Apparently, they had been trying to kill Albert for some time. The news report suggested there had been seven prior attempts. Poor Albert. Ruth and Judd were finally successful when they decided to hit Albert over the head with a curtain weight. That's a heavy iron rod that you use to keep your curtains hanging properly. And then, just to make sure, they also strangled Albert, stuffed his nose with rags soaked in chloroform, and tied him up to make it look like a robbery. Ruth told police a couple of large Italians had broken in and knocked her unconscious. Their home had been robbed three times in the last year, so the idea Ruth had for staging a burglary wasn't a terrible one. But it was pretty obvious early on that this wasn't really a robbery, especially after police found the missing jewelry under a bed. When accused by the police of murdering Albert, Ruth and Gray immediately turned on each other, each saying that the other one was the mastermind of the terrible crime. The newspapers took up the cause of publicizing literally anything about the case that they could, and it became a total media spectacle. This was exacerbated by what had become a war for subscribers between several New York tabloids who were all competing to print the most salacious details possible. It wasn't because the crime was particularly clever or interesting. Damon Runyon, a name you might know as another famous writer, was also a journalist at the time, and he called it the dumbbell murder because he thought the entire thing was just so stupid. Ruth, in particular, got the brunt of the news coverage. She was called a vampire wife, ruthless Ruth, even the Viking ice matron of Queen's Village. The papers couldn't figure out if she was cold as ice or too passionate to be womanly. Suffrage for women had just taken place a few years before the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920, and the question for many people was whether or not women, meaning Ruth, would be treated equally in the courtroom. If women were now considered equal to men, would she receive the same punishment as a man who had perpetrated the same crime? Or would the judge and jury consider her less culpable because she was female? The trial was a total spectacle. I read in several places they had almost 1,500 people in the courtroom watching. I can't imagine how that would have worked, but those attendees were not just journalists. They were literally anyone who could get in. Irving Berlin and D.W. Griffith were two of the men who attended regularly. The street outside the courthouse was like a party, with thousands of people crowding the streets and vendors selling everything from food to souvenirs. The news coverage was so complete and overwhelming that if you did a survey of the number of articles and the amount of newspaper footage given to Ruth and Gray's story, it was more than Lindbergh's cross-Atlantic flight and the execution of Sacco and Vanzetti, both major events that took place around the same time. In the end, both Ruth and Gray were sentenced to electrocution and sent to Sing Sing. Ruth's death was carried out first in January 1928, and then Gray's execution happened minutes later. Ruth was only the second woman to be executed using the electric chair. The first woman was executed in 1899, 30 years prior. One of the most telling things about the level of media interest in the trial is that a Chicago Tribune reporter named Tom Howard actually smuggled in a small camera attached to his leg and took a picture of Ruth's electrocution while it was in progress. That photo was plastered all over the papers and became perhaps the most famous news photo of the decade. It's pretty awful, even if it is a bit blurry. The photo hasn't been forgotten as much as I might wish that it would be. It shows up in popular media as well, even today. One of the nuttier pieces of trivia I found was that 
and here I'm definitely dating myself because I remember it, the photo of Ruth's execution is featured in the liner notes of Use Your Illusion by Guns N' Roses, with the band posing in front of a giant poster of the Daily News edition featuring the photo. Tom Howard's infamous leg camera is actually at the Smithsonian, though it's not on public view. Here I have to stop and add my two cents about this. What I think is interesting about this case is that when you look through the historical analysis of the case, there are a lot of comparisons to modern-day media spectacles, particularly the O.J. Simpson trial. If I can take a step out of my insurance history box for a bit, this subject is something that's always interested me and, in fact, was pretty much the focus of my graduate work. Not O.J. Simpson, but how certain crimes become bigger than the sum of their parts and why that happens. For me, I just happened to be living in Japan during the O.J. Simpson trial, and while I am infinitely grateful to not have been exposed to the daily news about who said what and what lawyer did what, I mean, if you remember the trial, it was everywhere. What I remember best was how confused Japanese people were about why it was such a big deal to Americans. Those decisions led me to research other historical cases in the U.S. that were similar and then eventually cases outside the U.S. I think cases like Ruth Snyder's and O.J. Simpson's become popular for lots of reasons. In both their cases, there had been a significant change in how popular media worked. In Ruth's case, there was a lot of newspaper competition and consolidation. And in O.J. Simpson's case, we really just entered into that 24-hour news cycle that's ubiquitous today. But for certain, these cases are also popular because they hit on concepts that are particular hot buttons in the culture at the time. Ruth, while being for all intents and purposes a housewife of middle years, was a middle-class woman with some independence in a time when women were only a few years out of getting the vote, and popular culture had changed the idea of women's roles. Where women fit into gender roles and society constraints, and what women were capable of, those ideas were all fluctuating. For O.J. Simpson, it was race and wealth and that cult of celebrity, which frankly seems to have culminated with the election of the 45th president. The trial of Ruth Snyder and Judd Gray inspired so many other stories. James M. Cain definitely used it in Double Indemnity, but also in The Postman Always Rings Twice. There was at least one Broadway production, a play called Machinal, written by Sophie Treadwell, which I'd never heard of, but I'm definitely going to check out. If you're paying attention, you'll notice that, of course, the case of Ruth Snyder and the movie Double Indemnity definitely have some significant differences. Obviously, James M. Cain wanted to write something original, but even the book itself is quite different than the movie. Some of this had to do with how difficult the book was to film, both logistically and politically. Cain's story had originally appeared as a popular eight-part serial in Liberty Magazine before he published it as a novel, and immediately after publication, the novel was being shopped for movie rights. A number of movie studios were interested, but the subject matter was a problem. If you know anything about Hollywood history or old movies, you might also know or have heard of something called the Hayes Code. This was actually really something called the Motion Picture Production Code, and it started in 1934 and controlled the content of movies to some extent or other for almost 35 years. Abiding by this code meant eliminating any profanity, nudity, sex, drugs, and a whole host of other questionable content. For example, you couldn't show someone getting away with a crime. They had to be shown being punished in the movie. You couldn't show someone being strangled or killed in a gruesome way. You couldn't show two married people in the same bed together, even if they were just reading a book. And you certainly couldn't show a married person having an affair. So not surprisingly, double indemnity was going to be a problem. Even before studios had bid on the book, J. 
Joseph Breen, who was the head of the Motion Picture Production Code. He had already warned studios not to take the material on by sending out a letter suggesting the material was, quote, totally unacceptable for screen production, unquote. Most of the studios dropped out of the bidding after that, but eventually Paramount stepped up and offered Kane $15,000 for the rights. This was about $10,000 less than the original bidding war had suggested. Paramount also had a caveat. Kane wouldn't get all the money up front. Instead, some money would be held back until the script was approved by the censors. Once Paramount brought Billy Wilder on as director, he knew that the script was going to need a lot of massaging, and not just because of the Hayes Code, though that certainly didn't help. Wilder was quite a well-known writer and wanted to work on the script himself. Originally, he tried to bring in his usual script partner, who demurred. Then he considered hiring Kane, but then decided to hire Raymond Chandler instead. That's a name I'm guessing you might know. Raymond Chandler had just written a very popular detective novel featuring a character named Philip Marlowe. That book, The Big Sleep, would result in a movie with Humphrey Bogart, released in 1946, after Double Indemnity. Though he had no Hollywood experience, Wilder thought Chandler's gift with dialogue might be an asset. One of the non-Hayes issues with the book was that while Kane's dialogue reads so well on the page, when spoken, it sounded terrible and was impossible to sell emotionally. Chandler's job was to convert Kane's words to things that would work on screen. And from the final script, you can say he did a fabulous job. The four months of work the two of them put in on the script wasn't enjoyable, though. Wildler and Chandler did not get along at all, and frankly, I think it's a miracle that the script was even finished. Wilder admits he was probably the reason Chandler started drinking again after being on the wagon for at least a year. Chandler hated Wilder's hat, which he never removed. Chandler hated the way Wilder dressed. Apparently, at one point, Chandler sent the studio a long list of grievances about Wilder, which included, as Wilder remembered it, quote, he wouldn't work with me anymore because I was rude, I was drinking, I was fornicating. I was on the phone with four broads. With one, I was on the phone, he clocked me for 12 and a half minutes. I had asked him to pull down the Venetian blinds without saying please, unquote. Despite this, they did manage to produce a script that met the Hayes requirements. That was no small feat. The Hayes issues were big and messy, and there were three major ones that dwarfed everything else. First, they had to deal with the actual murder. In the book, Neff, well, in the book his name is Huff, but I'm just going to use Neff for this character throughout, sorry. In the book, Neff kills the husband by breaking his neck using the crutch. Pretty gruesome stuff. In the movie, we don't see how he's killed at all. We see Neff rising from the back seat, and then the camera moves quickly to Phyllis, and we watch her face while the deed is done. The second issue was the confrontation between Phyllis and Neff when he thinks he's been made the sucker. In the book, he sets up this complicated plot to drive a car off a cliff with Phyllis inside, and then he's going to jump out of the car before it happens. He's shot while waiting for her, and he never sees who shot him. In the movie, they changed that to a face-to-face confrontation between Phyllis and Neff. She shoots him, and then, according to the script, she can't finish him off because she loves him. Personally, this didn't quite come through to me in the movie, but maybe in 1944 that would have been more obvious to viewers. He kills her with the gun, but we never really see that. It's shrouded. The third issue was the ending. In the book, and this is just fabulous, he confesses to Keyes, who then puts him on a boat to Mexico. The agreement is that as long as Neff manages to not get caught by Mexican authorities, Keys won't pursue him. But when he gets to the boat, there's Phyllis asking about getting married. 
and generally being all kinds of deranged. She decides to commit suicide by throwing herself off the boat, and Neff agrees to join her. The book ends with Neff realizing his internal bleeding has started again, sitting in Phyllis's room watching her apply a ghastly mask of white paint to her face while wearing some sort of horrible red robe and preparing for their suicides. Yeah, it's pretty grim. The original idea for the ending was showing Neff in prison making that walk to the electric chair with keys watching. They even filmed it. But in the end, decided to change it to the one where Neff is laying in the doorway of the insurance company with keys reassuring him. There were a lot of other things that got changed. I mentioned some of the names changed, including the name of the insurance company. Keys was given a much larger role. Wilder felt the relationship between Neff and Keys was the key relationship in the movie, and they clearly toned down Phyllis a lot, ugly wig notwithstanding. In the book, it's pretty clear Phyllis is a straight-up serial killer, having murdered at least 10 people, some of them children. In the movie, she might have killed Lola's mother. Her husband, in the book, is pretty benign. Even Phyllis says the reason she wants him dead is she doesn't love him anymore. In the movie, Phyllis suggests there might be some abuse, though, of course, we know as the audience that she might not be telling the truth. But it's not nearly as cold-blooded as the book. Once the script was approved, the next challenge was getting actors to sign on to what looked to be a challenging film. Stanwyck was Wilder's first choice, but she thought playing the femme fatale would ruin her career. Wilder asked her if she was an actress or a mouse. She signed on, bad wig and all. The bad wig was actually intentional on Wilder's part. He wanted the character to look trashy and fake, but studio people who saw the dailies were horrified, though the wig stayed. Fred McMurray wasn't their first choice for Neff, they had tried to find someone who gave off a sneakier, cannier vibe, but McMurray's staid good guyness was a great contrast to his character's actions. He'd played mostly funny guy roles in the past and originally thought he would just use the offer to get back at the producers at Paramount, thinking they would never agree. But when they okayed him taking the role, he figured, what the heck? Edward G. Robinson as Keys wasn't keen on taking a role that was really a supporting cast member, but he did so anyway. He'd been a big star for a long time, and he was very savvy, and he also knew he was getting older and needed to make a pivot to stay relevant and working. Here I have to give a shout-out to Robinson just in general. In the past, I had avoided his movies. Gangster movies, other than The Godfather, just really aren't my style. And like a lot of people, I'm guessing my exposure to Robinson was primarily Mel Brooks doing impressions of him in Bugs Bunny cartoons. But it just so happens that about six months before I saw Double Indemnity, my spouse talked me into seeing an old movie called The Sea Wolf, starring Edward G. Robinson as a really deranged bad guy, and he's just freaking transcendent. Now I'm watching everything of his I can get my hands on. He's so good. On the set, the other actors were in awe of him, not just because of his fame, but also because he literally never flubbed a line and was totally, perfectly memorized from the first day. With everyone now on board, Wilder and the studio were able to wrangle all these actors and issues and make an amazing film. I know you're thinking, okay, let's get to all that amazing insurance stuff. Me too. Let's talk about insurance. Okay, so it's a great movie, but what about the reality of this whole double indemnity thing? Accident policies, insurance policies that paid out due to a person's accidental injury or death, have been around and looking like we'd expect them to look today since about the 19th century. The idea of accident insurance is older, though, just FYI. The concept of double indemnity was a coverage extension, something added to improve a life insurance policy. And, honestly, as Walter Neff said in the movie, 
It probably started as an easy way for an insurance company to provide a unique coverage and distinguish themselves in the marketplace without risking too much. I wouldn't go so far as to call it a come on, like he did, but it probably wasn't something that people needed. Today, statistically, accidental death accounts for less than 5% of all deaths or something like that. Back then, maybe it was a little higher, but not so much that providing coverage was going to result in significant losses to the insurance company for double indemnity specifically. The idea of double indemnity is basic. On a life insurance policy, a double indemnity clause means that in the case of an accident that caused the policyholder's death, the life insurance policy would pay double. So, for example, if you bought a life insurance policy that would normally pay out $10,000 at the time of death, if the death was an accident and the double indemnity clause was on the policy, the policy would pay out $20,000. Pretty simple, right? The earliest use of the term double indemnity, according to my research, is in 1924. We know about this partly because, no surprise, a court case. The creator of the double indemnity clause based on this court case is the Equitable Life Assurance Company. And if that name rings a bell, that's because the Equitable Life was the insurance company owned by Henry Baldwin Hyde that created the hybrid life insurance Tontine product that was so popular in the late 19th and early 20th century. Even though their Tontine product was banned in 1906, they were still writing and innovating, as you can see. And I got to say Tontine again. <laughs> now, the Equitable wouldn't want to just offer double indemnity for every possible accident, right? They would want to make sure they had eliminated anything they wouldn't have wanted to cover. In the case of the double indemnity on the equitable policies, it covered death by accident unless it was caused directly or indirectly by military or naval service of any kind in time of war or by engaging as a passenger or otherwise in submarine or aeronautic expeditions. I love this because it highlights how insurance companies deal with new technology. Let's exclude it. Mind you, the industry doesn't always immediately exclude new things, but we definitely do sometimes. So if you're on a submarine and you die, no double indemnity. If you're on an aeronautic expedition, and I assume this also included things like zeppelins and balloons and not just planes, no double indemnity. In 1931, the first really solid challenge to this wording, because as you know, no wording is trustworthy until the courts have weighed in on it, was when the mother of a man named Harold Gibbs brought suit against the Equitable. Harold Gibbs had been a passenger on a seaplane in New York in 1929, operated by a small airline called Coastal Airways that crashed into the Hudson. Or, as the court case argued, quote, the machine fell and Mr. Gibbs sustained mortal injuries, unquote. It just fell. Go figure. <laughs> Sadly, Gibbs died of his injuries. The beneficiary, Harold's mother, argued that the double indemnity clause applied and that double the life benefits should be paid out by equitable. Here's where we get into the oddities of the construction of insurance wording. My first thought was, well, the wording clearly says passengers are excluded and he was a passenger. But no, the or, O-R, is the important word here. The exclusion has two phrases. One, military or naval service of any kind in time of war. And two, or by engaging as a passenger or otherwise in submarine or aeronautic expeditions. Well, crap. Do you have to be a passenger in an aeronautic expedition, not just a passenger on a commercial airway? The insurance company argued that the exclusion applied since he was on an aeronautic expedition. If you're wondering what an expedition is, well, the court wondered too. 
doesn't appear to have been a defined term in the policy, haha, and the way the court saw it, being a passenger on a commercial airline, even a very small one, wasn't exactly an expedition. The court found in her favor and paid out the double indemnity. The wording continued to evolve, as most wordings generally do, and eventually it seems to have standardized, at least by the time James M. Kane sent pen to paper to write his book Double Indemnity. At this point, most double indemnity clauses provided twice the life insurance policy limit for deaths resulting from accidents, which included drowning, murder, car accidents, and injury from machinery. Now, that might have been a little too broad for Kane. Too many ways they could have gotten that double indemnity by offing Phyllis's husband. It's clear that in the case of Kane's imaginary policy, the double indemnity clause was pretty much limited to death by a common carrier. So, if you died as a result of train, bus, or airline travel. Based on my reading, I think most policies were fairly broad at this point, but I can see why Kane made an editorial decision to limit his imaginary clause. I mean, Ruth Snyder had planned on making a claim for double indemnity based on her husband's murder, so we know at least that was a generally included event in 1927. There were, of course, some things that double indemnity wouldn't cover, and Kane seems to be aware of this as well. For example, suicide or the murder of the policyholder by a beneficiary. In general, Kane did his research on insurance before writing the book, which means in some ways you can look at it as a bit of a historical record of insurance in the 1930s, which is really fun. Some things were made up, of course. Neff and Keyes work for a company in the book called General Fidelity of California. Wilder and Chandler changed the name of the company to the slightly sexier, I guess, Pacific All-Risk Insurance Company. While neither of these companies existed in reality, that didn't stop several companies from using those names or some variation of them even now which I find very funny. Since the insurance company in the movie had the words all risk in its name, you can assume, and the movie certainly suggests, that they sell all kinds of insurance. Neff and Keyes mention a lot of different policy types, auto, life, and public liability among them. Neff tries to sell Phyllis at their first meeting on a new kind of 50% retention feature in the collision coverage, which immediately reminded me of the Allstate commercials a few years ago about their deductible rewards program, where your deductible goes down the more years you drive without an accident. So, sorry, Allstate, that wasn't a new idea. Neff seems to fit the general perception of insurance salesmen at the time, though based on his behavior that first visit to Phyllis's home, my general impression was that he'd probably messed around with other wives in the past. Though on second viewing, I thought, is this what Kane thinks insurance salesmen are like, flirting to make a deal? Frankly, I found Neff both creepy and pushy towards Phyllis in that first scene, but maybe that was just me. I have to take a slight detour to say that while I recognize that the relationship realism in movies in 1944 is certainly different than what we expect today, boy, I did not even understand how the relationship between Neff and Phyllis even happened. Honestly, did these people even like each other? When I was researching this movie, a lot of critics said that Neff was very sympathetic. I didn't see that at all. He does give some good advice, though. He tells Phyllis when he gives her the copy of the policy not to put it in their safe deposit box because of probate. Right on, Neff. If someone dies and you go into probate, you often can't open a safe deposit box belonging to that person until probate is completed, which can take years. Just FYI. Anyway, while Neff gets some good insurance lines, I particularly enjoy the stuff in the first scene with Phyllis where he explains the difference between buying insurance from his company or something like AAA. He's not the character with the best lines about insurance. That, hands down, is Keyes. 
Keyes, the claims manager, of course, gets the best insurance stuff. Even his office is filled with awesome insurance stuff. There's a huge frame poster on the wall in his office I would love to get for my own. It says, life insurance surrender rate at an all-time low with an accompanying chart. From the start of the movie, Neff sets Keyes up as the kind of insurance company employee many of us would like to know. He's, quote, such a hot potato as a claims manager and such a wolf on a phony claim, unquote. I don't think I've ever described anyone as a hot potato. But anyway, Neff tells Keyes early on after he watches the claims manager berate a policyholder on one of those phony claims that, quote, you're so darn conscientious you're driving yourself crazy. You wouldn't even say today is Tuesday without you looking at the calendar. And then you would check if it was this year's or last year's calendar. And then you would find out what company printed the calendar and then find out if their calendar checks with the World Almanac's calendar. Sounds like some underwriters I know, too. (laughs) Keyes has a real feel for what the job of a claims adjuster should be, saying that a claims man is a doctor and a bloodhound and a cop and a judge and a jury and a father confessor all in one. Well, that also means investigating his fiancée, after which he broke off the engagement, leading to this classic line from Neff, quote, I get the idea. She was a tramp from a long line of tramps, unquote. The dialogue in this is just the best. I mean, who says that? I love it. Once Phyllis's husband dies and they get into the nuts and bolts of investigating the death, that's when the insurance stuff gets very pointed. The head of the insurance company, who is the son of the founder, is pretty, well, insecure? Originally, he believes that the death was a suicide from falling off the train and breaking his neck. Keyes thinks it's just an accident, no suicide. How could you commit suicide falling off the back of a train going 15 miles an hour? But then, later on, Keyes starts asking questions. Before having doubts, though, he has this amazing conversation with the head of the insurance company who has just accused Keyes in a passive-aggressive way of treating him like an idiot. I was raised in the insurance business, Mr. Keyes, he says. Keyes replies, yeah, in the front office. Come on, you've never read an actuarial table in your life. I've got 10 volumes on suicide alone. Suicide by race, by color, by occupation, by sex, by seasons of the year, by time of day. Suicide, how committed? By poisons, by firearms, by drowning, by leaps. Suicide by poisons, subdivided by types of poisons such as corrosive, irritant, systemic, gaseous, narcotic, alkaloid, protein, and so forth. Suicide by leaps, subdivided by leaps from high places, under wheels of trains, under wheels of trucks, under the feet of horses, from steamboats. But Mr. Norton, of all the cases on record, there's not one single case of suicide by leap from the rear end of a moving train. And do you know how fast that train was going at the point where the body was found? 15 miles an hour. Now how could anybody jump off a slow-moving train like that with any kind of expectation he would kill himself? No soap, Mr. Norton. We are sunk, and we're going to have to pay through the nose, and you know it. Now imagine Robinson delivering that speech perfectly every time for every take. Amazing. And when you think of, say, prior podcast episodes where I talked about the development of mortality tables, things that were still in flux and often inaccurate in the 19th century, isn't it amazing that Keyes is saying that in 1938 they had all that information at their fingertips? Later on, it becomes more clear to Keyes that something isn't right, that while it wasn't suicide, maybe it was something more ominous. He said to Neff, Look, a man takes out an accident policy that's worth $100,000 if he's killed on a train. Then two weeks later, he is killed on a train. And not in a train accident, mind you, but falling off some silly observation car. 
Do you know what the mathematical probability of that is, Walter? One out of, I don't know how many billions. And add to that the broken leg. It just can't be the way it looks, Walter. Something has been worked on us. I imagine that to anyone in claims listening, this feeling of something not being right is probably pretty familiar. Keyes calls it the little man in his gut. Most of the claims people I know have something similar. In the end, Keyes denies the claim and Phyllis ends up suing. This is exactly what usually happens after a claims declination in many cases. Though, how often the claimants show up at the insurance company's office with a black dress and a veil to talk to the claims manager? I have to think that's zero, but I could be wrong. Sure, there are some things that I think are inaccurate, but they're minor. And it's hard to know if they were decisions made by Kane and Wilder and Chandler for literary reasons or because they didn't know better. And frankly, I might be wrong. I mean, I wasn't an insurance person in 1938, but they're minor quibbles and not really worth talking about. I was left thinking, though, about whether or not there were other double indemnities, the insurance, not the movie, if there were other issues worth exploring. Turns out, I found a couple of things interesting enough to mention. When I was looking at policy wording for the late 1930s and 40s for double indemnity clauses, I was struck by a few of the exclusions, extreme activities and negligence. The extreme activities one is sort of fun. I mean, what qualifies as extreme? Rock climbing? jumping out of a plane, you might think about defining the term extreme activities in the policy to be safe, but that might hurt you rather than help you. I mean, how can you possibly know all of the crazy things people could get up to? For example, what about Russian roulette? Is that an extreme activity, or is that something that falls under, say, negligence? I mean, for example, if you don't wear your seatbelt and you die in a car crash as a result, on a lot of policies, double indemnity would not apply, because you would be found to be negligent. Uh, The caveat here, this would probably only work now, since seatbelt laws are pretty much everywhere in the U.S. In 1938, I'm guessing wearing a seatbelt was an entirely optional endeavor, if the car even had them. But playing with a loaded gun for fun? Hmm. And so, of course, there's a court case. 1952's Thompson v. Prudential Insurance Company of America. The claimant was the beneficiary. Her son had been playing Russian roulette and shot and killed himself while playing the game. Personally, (laughs) I wasn't surprised the courts found with the insurance company and said that playing Russian roulette with a loaded gun was negligent. It wasn't an extreme activity, but maybe that's because the courts didn't want to encourage Russian roulette as an activity at all. But then I found out that the man who died wasn't an adult. He was 16. And I wonder how that would have been litigated today. Now, mind you, if you are playing Russian roulette and you're walking back to the table with the gun and you almost drop the gun and when you're fumbling to catch it, you shoot yourself and die, that would be covered according to court records. Yep. Do not play Russian roulette. I just want to be clear. Don't play Russian roulette. You won't see double indemnity in policies these days, at least as far as I know. It's been replaced by something called accidental death and dismemberment or some variation on that term. If you work for an employer, you may have seen or been offered this coverage for free or for a low cost in your benefits package. Accidental death and dismemberment is a standalone policy that evolved from double indemnity and covers death by accident, with a few exceptions, of course. It does offer more than just accidental death. These policies pay out a certain amount if you lose a particular body part, for example, the dismemberment part of the name. I'm not sure when this became a common thing to offer to employees, but I suspect 9-11 might have triggered it. What I do know for sure is that accidental death policies of all types became more common in the decade after 9-11 
in part because of aggressive marketing directly to consumers. Two companies in particular seem to have led that charge, Mutual of Omaha and a company called JCPenney Life. I had no idea there was a JCPenney Life insurance company, but it was bought out by another company in 2015. If you watch daytime TV today, you might see more ads for these types of policies. You may also see an accidental death rider on your life insurance policy, which does about the same thing. So while double indemnity coverage was popular for a while, it eventually evolved into something more standardized in the market. In the insurance versus history showdown, well, I think this is a tie, which makes sense because it's a movie. Any publicity is good publicity, right? Well, sometimes. And it's fun to see how insurance was represented in 1944 or 1938, and how it's different and the same as today. James M. Cain went on to write a lot of popular books and see more of his works become movies. The Postman Always Rings Twice came out two years after Double Indemnity and was a massive hit. Raymond Chandler also kept writing, and his books kept being made into movies. But he never really got back on the wagon after starting to drink during the writing of the movie script, though he tried. There are only two known film clips of Chandler, and one of them is a cameo in Double Indemnity. He's sitting outside Key's office reading a magazine, if you're interested. Billy Wilder went on to become a Hollywood powerhouse. Fred McMurray, as I mentioned before, had a long and fruitful career in movies and TV, as did Stanwyck. The movie didn't ruin their careers in the slightest. Robinson fought being gray-listed in Hollywood after being brought in front of the House Un-American Committee in the 1950s, even though he was cleared of any involvement in communist activities. Luckily for him, Cecil B. DeMille cast him in The Ten Commandments, which revitalized his flagging career. He went on to make a lot more movies until he died in 1973. The house featured in the movie is still there, and the address is pretty easy to find. It's listed on Zillow for a little over $2 million if you're inclined to buy a vacation home with a little history. Huh. The movie, Double Indemnity, was nominated for seven Academy Awards, but won none of them. Stanwyck lost to Ingrid Bergman in the movie Gaslight. If you've never seen that, you must see it, even to understand completely why Angela Lansbury became a big star. She steals everything in that movie. Even more lasting, though, was the legacy the movie left, signaling the real beginning of a change in American thought. Americans had just come out of the Depression, and in 1944, when the movie was made, they were still in the throes of World War II. People had become more cynical and wanted media that reflected that. They wanted to see regular people behaving in a way that was more accurate to how they had begun to see the world. They wanted to see people doing bad things to get what they wanted. And for those of us in insurance, the movie still stands as an accurate representation of insurance and a great historical throwback to insurance in the 30s and 40s not to mention being a heck of a thriller. You couldn't ask for more. Thanks for listening. Show notes and a list of sources and additional reading suggestions can be found on my website, which is linked in the show description on your podcast player. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your preferred platform to be notified of new episodes as soon as they drop. And let other people know about the podcast by spreading the word. Join me over on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to tell me your thoughts about the podcast episode or insurance history in general, I'd love to hear them. Make sure to use the hashtag insurancevshistory so I can find it. My social media is linked in the show description in your podcast player as well, so give me a shout. And remember, be safe, be smart, and read your policy wording. (laughs) 